Hi, welcome to Cochrane Alliance Church and our online sermons. We are so glad you are able to join us. We pray that this sermon will be a blessing and an encouragement to you this week. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful to be here with these people this morning. So grateful to be able to gather together to sing songs of praise loudly to your name to pray together in freedom, to read your scriptures. And today, Father, we know it's the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And we know that around the world, these types of gatherings would never be able to happen. We know that around the world, there are Christians who are losing jobs, who are being arrested, who are being beaten, imprisoned, and even killed simply for proclaiming your name. And so, Lord, we lift our brothers and sisters around the world up to you. And we ask that you would... You would just inspire their faith. I, I think of scripture and I, I know when the early church was first being persecuted, they did not pray for safety, but they prayed for boldness in the face of the threats of their enemies. And so Lord, to follow the, the theme of scripture, I ask that you would help our brothers and sisters to be bold, that you would surround them with your presence and your power, that you would strengthen them from within by your spirit. And Lord, I've been so blessed reading some of these stories that come from the persecuted church, stories of faith and miracles, stories of salvation in the most unlikeliest of places. And so Lord, your kingdom comes and your will will be done. We think of places on earth where there is so much suffering and destruction. We think of Israel and Gaza Strip. We think of Ukraine and Russia. We think of the South Sudan and Haiti and all of these places where there is just untold suffering and warfare. And what can we say, Father, in response to these massive, um, complex issues that, that hurt people? Except your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, we pray that your will would be done in these places. That your kingdom would come. That we would be restored to the way that we are always meant to be. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. The sermon today is going to be on the kingdom of God, using a parable of Jesus. And I realized as I was writing out, first I was like, well, first of all, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? And uh, I could write an entire sermon simply on the kingdom of God, trying to get every nuance and everything across. But I found a Bible project video that I think, while it doesn't capture the entirety of what the kingdom of God is, I think it gets us to the right place. And so I want us to watch that video, and then we'll jump in to the sermon this morning. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger. And he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring 
good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love.
got confused again. It's like, am I muted? Am I not? But that video, I think, does a great job of summarizing most of what the kingdom of God is. It's the good news that Jesus reigns. And what we see in this video is that the kingdom of God is certainly not of this world. And yet the kingdom of God is always at work in this world. God's kingdom is at work in this world, as it said at the end of the video, through the followers of Jesus. By the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the followers of Jesus spread the news, the message, the gospel of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. But I think what is so important for us to remember when we talk about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is not anything like the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God shares none of the characteristics of our worldly power structures or political leanings. It's a kingdom not of this world. As the Bible Project guys said, in this world, a powerful, successful kingdom needs to be strong and able to impose its will and able to defeat its enemies with its armies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies, forgiving them and seeking peace. And this is probably one of the, I would say, the most overlooked commandment of Jesus in the scripture to love your enemy and to do good to those who hate you and persecute you. It, it's, it does not make any sense to love your enemy. And yet what we saw and what the video showed is that love of enemy becomes a transformative act that can maybe, and not certainly, but maybe, change an enemy into one who comes into the kingdom. You forgive them and you seek peace. That is an upside-down kingdom. And so before talking more deeply about the kingdom of God, just to be really clear, there are, there's multiple kingdoms around our world, right? Different nation states, different governments and systems of government and different nations with rulers and leaders. But the kingdom of God doesn't look anything like those kingdoms. The kingdom of God is, in the world's perspective, an upside-down kingdom. And I found a quote by Greg Boyd, which makes the distinction. And, you know, me could quibble with this, this quote. Maybe it's not nuanced enough. It's, it's not complex enough. But I think... I think it is something that we should wrestle with as we think about the kingdom of God. He said, participants in the kingdoms of the world trust in the power of the sword to control behavior. Participants of the kingdom of God trust the power of self-sacrificial love to transform hearts. The kingdom of the world is concerned with preserving law and order by force. The kingdom of God is concerned with establishing the rule of God through love. The kingdom of the world is centrally concerned with what people do, and the kingdom of God is centrally concerned with how people are and what they can become by being born again as new creations in Christ indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If I really read this, I wrestle with this because I go, that doesn't sound realistic. Don't you know that there are evil people in this world who do evil things, who invade other nations, who attack other nations? And yet I'm convicted when I read the scriptures and when I read the history of the early church that they really believed this. That self-sacrificial love in the face of an enemy's hatred was the call of Christ. Because that is the gospel actually summed up. That while we were yet God's enemies, he died for us. He didn't trample us under his feet. He didn't crush us into the ground. He said, you hate me and rebel against me. Let me die for you. Let my blood be shed for you. Let my body be nailed to a cross for you, the ones who shake your fist in rebellion to me. And so as people of the kingdom of God, I think we have a responsibility 
to make sure that we represent the kingdom of God in the same ways that Jesus did with self-sacrificial love and service, caring for the physical and spiritual needs of people with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, saying and doing what the Spirit would lead us to do to transform a world that is in rebellion and in darkness. And as Christians living out the principles of the kingdom of God that we are citizens and ambassadors of, I tend to think of each one of us as an outpost or an embassy of the kingdom of God here on earth. I think of, you can think of your house as an embassy of the kingdom of God in your neighborhood. This is the place where the spirit of God dwells because the spirit of God dwells within you. Or as Jesus might put it, it is a light shining on the hill. And as we've already seen, the kingdom of God is, is often different than we expect it to be. And even how Jesus describes the kingdom of God is different than we might expect. Jesus describes the kingdom of God in, in different various parables. And the parable that I want to look at today was in Luke's gospel, chapter 13, verses 18 to 21. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And so Jesus describes the kingdom of God here in two ways. It's like a mustard seed, which is a very tiny little seed, and it's like yeast in the bread dough, which he used a tiny little bit of yeast in a massive amount of dough. And I just want to kind of go through both these descriptions. Let's start with the mustard seed. So you probably know this. If you don't, the mustard seed is an incredibly tiny seed. It's very, very small. But if you know anything about the mustard shrub, the tree, it has this little tiny seed has the potential to grow into this massive shrub. Jesus calls it a tree. I think the technical thing is it's a shrub, but it, it can grow to be nine feet tall and like wide, 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 wide. It can really just overtake the entire place. And so if you didn't know what the mustard seed was, you might go, oh, look at this little seed. It's going to grow like a little lettuce leaf, or it's going to grow a little carrot, or it's going to grow a little herb. And you'd plant it in the ground thinking, I'm going to have a little tiny something grow here. And if you let it grow, it would eventually take over your entire garden that little tiny seed would become exponentially larger. And that is a great description of God's kingdom, of course, because God seems to delight in taking the smallest and the least and growing it into something grand and gigantic that you never would have expected. The kingdom of God established through Jesus, the king started small, right? Just like a little mustard seed. Jesus is the king and his disciples were the first people in the kingdom. But nobody really looked at Jesus and his disciples and his apostles and said, wow, I see the king in the kingdom. There were a few people around the region of Galilee who said he must be the king. He must be who he says he is. But there were many who said, but where's his palace? Where's his horse? Where's his army? Where's his... And there's a, there's a brief, you know, I think about Jesus. Sometimes Jesus, you know, goes and he's doing miracles and the people from his hometown go, isn't that just Joseph's son? We know him. He's a nobody. He's like us. And his disciples are some fishermen and a tax collector and a few other men that weren't really of any wealth or status or influence. It doesn't really look like a king in a kingdom. It looks like a poor rabbi and some ragtag followers. There's a brief moment where Jesus is welcomed like a king into the city of Jerusalem towards the end of his life. But that warm, triumphal entry ends just a few days later with Jesus executed on the cross and most of the people going, I guess we were wrong. I guess he wasn't the king we had expected. 
Now, Jesus was the king of kings, but nothing about him looked like how the world expects a king to look, and nothing about his followers really looked like a kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God was working in the world, but there was no coronation ceremony, no worldwide publicity, no worldly power, no money, no buildings, no facilities, nothing that we tend to think that we need. At one point, Jesus said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't know where he's going to sleep. We go, how could you be a king in a kingdom and you're broke? (laughs) You don't have anything. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is already among you. And that's confusing, right? Because the kingdom of God, like, they're like, but where is it? Where's the borders of this kingdom? Where's the army that's going to secure the borders of this kingdom and kick the Romans out? Like, where is this so-called kingdom of God? And Jesus said, well, it's already here, but you can't see it. And Jesus meant that the kingdom is made up of those who've been redeemed. The kingdom is about salvation, setting people free from sin and making them a new creation. And you can't see it unless you're looking with spiritual eyes. Because there aren't going to be any marching armies. And there aren't going to be any trumpets blown. And there isn't going to be any loud music to say, here it is. And there's not going to be any palaces. But it's here. Because all of those who follow Jesus, they make up the kingdom on earth. And so Jesus, by using the mustard seed to describe the kingdom of God, is saying, guys, it's small like this seed. But when we put this seed in the ground, when we plant it, it's going to grow and grow and grow. And it's going to spread across the entirety of the garden. The seed of the kingdom started with Jesus and his followers. And in the centuries that have passed, the kingdom has grown and grown and grown to the ends of the earth. So understanding that the kingdom of God can look unassuming and small like a mustard seed, but can grow and grow and nothing can really stop it once it starts, I think that that imagery can help us right here and right now. Because I sometimes meet believers who seem really fearful because the culture of Canada is changing. We are becoming a more secular nation. We are moving into a post-Christian society. And while I can understand that fear, and sometimes even indulge in it myself, the parable of the mustard seed showing us the kingdom of God is a reminder that the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. And throughout history, we have seen that hostile cultures and even hostile governments cannot stop the genuine growth of God's kingdom, and nothing on this earth can stop God's kingdom work. It can't be stopped. I just want to look at how the kingdom of God has grown through the centuries. I'm going to do a little bit of a history lesson. When Jesus left this earth, there was about 120 believers gathered in Jerusalem, and Jesus ascended to heaven. 120 believers is a really, really small group for a movement that's supposed to go and disciple all the nations of the earth. 120 people are not much of a kingdom. And then we read when the Holy Spirit comes and and empowers them, on that day 3,000 people accept Jesus as Savior and Lord and are baptized. And that's a good start. 3,000 people in one day is a good start. But you think of the entirety of the Roman Empire, from Britain all the way to Turkey, you've got millions of people and now you've got a few thousand in Jerusalem. So 3,000 in one day is amazing, but if you think about the, the commission to go to the ends of the earth, that's pretty small. 
And then those believers, you know, the Lord's adding to their number every day. So maybe they're around 10,000, 11,000. And then a great persecution happens. And they spread across the Roman Empire because of this persecution. But as they spread, they take the kingdom principles with them. And they become little outposts of the kingdom of God across the Roman Empire. And some of them become missionaries, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, like the Apostle Paul. And as they spread, they gather more into the kingdom, and the kingdom of God keeps on growing. Now I want to jump you 200 years later, in the year about 200 to 300 AD. The kingdom of God, which is made up of all those who believe in the Lord Jesus, is still relatively small, much, much larger than it had been, but still small. And then this amazingly weird thing happened. There was these plagues that came across to all the major cities of Rome. A massive pandemic, and it was a bad one. Like, people were dying in the streets, people were dying in their homes, and uh, Rodney Stark talks about this, if you want to find that. You can just Google Rodney Stark, Rise of Christianity. Rodney Stark's a sociologist who says, it was in this moment that Christianity really gained traction. Because here's what was happening. People were dying by the thousands in these cities. And so the, the Roman people were scared. All the people who lived in these cities were scared. And they were running off into the hills to get away from the major population centers. And they were leaving behind children. And they were leaving behind the, the sick. And they were leaving behind, like, even friends and family members just to get away. The only people who didn't leave were the Christians. Why didn't the Christians leave? Because Jesus said, when you care for those who are sick, you care for me. And again, remember, these are people that often mocked them. And persecuted them and made fun of them. And they said, ah, and Jesus said, when you love your enemy, then you are like your father in heaven. So we will love our enemy and we'll care for the sick. And the Christians stayed in the cities. And they cared for the children and the orphans and the the dying. And they buried the dead with dignity. And that, according to Rodney Stark, as he says, that was the thing that catapulted the church into prominence. And so we should, we should be aware that throughout these centuries leading up to these plagues and, and some of these mass conversions to Christianity that came out of this is that the believers were not warmly received in their communities, even when they did good. Sometimes there were sporadic moments of intense persecution. It wasn't constant, but in different parts of the empire, they had different levels of persecution. Sometimes you had whole emperors who hated Christians and would hunt them down. You think of Emperor Nero, who hunted the Christians down and crucified them and burnt them on stakes and fed them to lions. And yet, in spite of this incredible persecution, in spite of people mocking them and even hating them, the kingdom of God grew. The kingdom of God grew through fierce persecution without any voice in the government, without any popularity in the culture. It grew. And why did it grow? It grew because Christians were living out the kingdom principles on earth. The Christians were outposts of the kingdom of God in a rebellious world. And the kingdom grew through the love and the compassion and the sharing of the message of Jesus by the followers of Jesus. We see then that the kingdom of God does not need those things that we might consider powerful and important. The gospel was spread and the kingdom of God grew not by political power or by acceptance in the culture, but simply through the perseverance of those who followed Christ and worked to bring others into the kingdom through love of the enemy, caring of the poor. And when I asked why they did what they were doing, they shared the hope that they had in Jesus. The advancement of the kingdom of God is often hidden. 
yet it is a powerful transforming work through our lives and then person to person to person. If I was to trace what Christianity does when it's at its best, when it's really following the principles of the kingdom of God as we see it in scripture, I see what they are doing is is they're sharing the hope of Jesus and they're feeding the poor. They're sharing the hope in Jesus and they're caring for the sick. They're praying in Jesus' name for miracles to come, for the gospel to be proved true. And I know this might make some of you uncomfortable, but in the early years of the church, in the first few hundred years, They were casting out demons. And when emperors would say, Christianity is a false religion, some of the the apologists for the Christians would write letters and say, Christianity must be true because we are the only ones who can set people free from these spirits that compel them to do things they do not want to do. All in all, what I want to say, though, is it's pretty simple. It's person to person to person. It's care for those in your neighborhood. And when they ask, why do you care so much? You say, because Jesus cares about you. And so I care about you. It's pretty simple. I want to do, just as we come to the the end here, some modern day examples of how the kingdom is like a mustard seed that grows. We can look at the spread of Christianity in the Soviet Union. When the communists took control, they banned all religion. They imprisoned pastors and imprisoned Christians and in different parts of the Soviet Union at different levels of intensity of persecution. Many Christians were arrested and died in brutal prisons. They were tortured in those places. The schools in the Soviet Union would teach children that God was for the old and the weak, that faith in God was just a fairy tale. Children were taught atheism as as the true belief. Churches were closed and Christian meetings were illegal. And so you would imagine in an environment like this, where the government is bent on stamping out the religion of Christianity, like that is a mandate that they have, is to destroy Christian faith, you would imagine that there would be no Christians left after a few decades. And yet by 1980, 60 years after communism first began, the estimate was that the number of Christians in the country was three times higher than when communism first took over in a place where Christianity is illegal, where Christians have no voice in the government, in the school, or in the culture, the kingdom of God grew. Now, there was pockets in the Soviet Union where, where it really took root, this, this atheism, this, this hatred. There's certain countries where, uh, you know, the Soviet Union controlled, and it really beat the Christians down. But at the end of the day, across the entirety, Christianity f- almost flourished through a lot of pain and suffering. And yet, again, I go to the scriptures where pain and suffering is expected by the followers of Jesus. How many times does it say in the scriptures, rejoice when trials come your way? Suffering produces perseverance and character and hope. Even more recently, we can look at the spread of Christianity in China. For decades, Christians there had no voice, no power, were being actively persecuted, and yet the gospel was spreading and growing. In 1949, the year communism came in and and the persecution of Christians began, there was an estimated one million Protestant Christians in China. Today, after decades of persecution and the government trying for decades to obliterate the faith of Christianity, there's about 55 million Protestant Christians. That's according to the BBC News Service. And according to BBC, more Chinese people now attend church in China than in all of Europe combined. After years and years of atheism being taught in the schools of China, years of persecution and oppression, Christian faith grew from 1 million to 55 million. Now, I'm not saying that we should seek persecution for our faith. It's the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and and our longing would be that no Christian should suffer or be tortured or imprisoned. But I do read this history to give us hope that the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. 
that what looks like the triumph of worldly powers often is their defeat as the kingdom of God grows in the most unlikely of places. And I am saying that we shouldn't be fearful of losing power, prestige, or even cultural acceptance because the lesson of the kingdom of God is that it starts small like a mustard seed, but it grows and it grows. And what we see is that the kingdom of God does not have to spread by using political, cultural power or prestige in the culture. In fact, I always think of this. Most of those European countries, while China was actively persecuting Christians, the European countries, Christianity was the dominant religion in those days, in the 1960s, 1950s. And while Christianity had political power and cultural power and prestige amongst the culture, they started to decline. And in China, where Christianity was being stamped out and mocked and persecuted, it ascended. And so that just reminds me not to fear. Not to fear. There is no fear for us. And what we see also, if we look at the history of this, is that the kingdom of God grows organically, person by person. It grows when we live out the kingdom of principles where we are. Being like the early church, feed the hungry, share the news of Jesus, care for the sick, share the news of Jesus, pray for the world, pray for your neighbors, pray for your enemies, and pray for yourselves, and share the news of Jesus. The kingdom of God is just so very, very different from an earthly kingdom. And when we become citizens of the kingdom, we want the values of the kingdom to change our very nature. We want to be full of righteousness, peace, and joy, and we want to serve the king and his kingdom. And just as we close... I'm actually going to play another video, but I'll set it up here. It leads to the next parable of the kingdom. The kingdom is like yeast in the bread dough. The yeast of the kingdom of God permeates us completely. And then as, the kingdom, as kingdom outposts, we infiltrate and permeate the culture around us like yeast in the dough. Jesus explained, what else is the kingdom of God like? It's like yeast that a woman used in making bread. And even though she put in only a little yeast, it permeated every part of the dough. So the kingdom is like yeast in the bread dough. Jesus gives us that image of a woman making a huge batch of dough for bread. And in comparison to the amount of flour, you use just a little yeast. A few years ago, I started making bread in a bread maker. I don't anymore because it's a lot of work. Uh, it didn't like, I was just go to the grocery store. Um, but I did, I did it for a while and I was always amazed. It's like two and a half cups of flour and you make your dough and then you put in two teaspoons of yeast. And it doesn't look like anything. You mix it in and it doesn't look like anything's happening. You let it sit for 30 minutes and all of a sudden, whoa, it's a totally different thing. This is, it's totally transformed. And that's the interesting thing about yeast is that just a little bit can transform a whole lot. And once it's mixed in, you can't see it at all. And at first when it's in there, it doesn't look like it's doing anything. But over time, it starts to change. And that's what the kingdom of God is like in the world. It's like yeast in the dough. It doesn't take much to make a radical change. That's what you see in the examples from Russia or China or the early church in the Roman Empire. The followers of Jesus permeate their culture and their society. All the kingdom of God needs is to have citizens of the kingdom, that's us, engaged in transforming the world like yeast transforms dough. And we rem remember this, we transform the world not by the worldly methods and weapons, but by using the tools of our kingdom and our king, love and service, grace and mercy, compassion, prayer, and Holy Spirit power. And we see that where the kingdom of God really grows, the people of the kingdom are busy transforming the society they live in one person at a time, doing what they can, where they are, with what they have, and who they are with. It doesn't take much. It might not even look like much, but it transforms the world. 
And I want to close today by just playing a video of a, a woman who I think is really inspiring, who is transforming the world one person at a time. We'll watch that and then we'll worship together. In my lifetime, I have experienced the rule of two totalitarian regimes. One was the German Nazis, and the second was the Russian Communists. The Word of God says 366 times, do not be afraid, do not fear. So we weren't afraid. After 40 years of communism here, the fact that many believers left the country, the Czech Republic has been called the most atheist place in Europe. It breaks my heart. My name is Ludmila Harerova. I'm 82 years old. I have seven grandchildren and five great-grandchildren. My husband went to heaven in 2002. The Lord Jesus told me, now he is my husband, and he wants to continue to use me. He wants me to be his representative, his ambassador. Next to the door of my house, there is a bronze sign that says, the embassy of the kingdom of heaven. My home is an extension of Christ's kingdom. It's a place where people can come and look for help if they're in trouble or have a need. The Bible says the kingdom of heaven is joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. That is the atmosphere I want here at the embassy. The visitors that I get, some of them have called ahead to let me know they're coming, and some just come. The ones that haven't called are usually the best ones because I'm not prepared for them. Everything that happens is dependent on the Lord. Today, a dear friend came by. She's a widow, and her family really are struggling financially. Whenever people enter this house, I just lay everything else aside and spend time with them. I have learned to recognize the inner voice of the Holy Spirit and give Him room to use me. The Holy Spirit likes to take control. Often I listen to myself and I'll say things I wouldn't even think about. There is no problem to deal with the issues people bring when they come here. 
because the Holy Spirit is here. It's an honor for me to be an instrument of God's love and His wisdom every day. We often don't realize that all believers are called to be representatives of the kingdom of heaven. We are all ambassadors. The Lord Jesus didn't choose to do it any other way. He simply entrusted us.